Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about some big news items that are here in Canada. Some disturbing news about the former, quote, Indian residential school system, end quote, and the Ontario Premier, Premier's renewed use of emergency powers. So these issues, uh, they sound more political, really, than uh, matters maybe discussed on a Christian podcast. So maybe, Aaron, you could explain why are we delving into politics on this Leadership Now podcast? I think this is a common question that a lot of Christians struggle with, and part of it is a misunderstanding of the nature of contemporary politics. If you pay attention to political issues that are reported in our newspapers, on social media, etc., there admittedly are uh, decisions that are being made that are kind of non-moral in nature. So an example in our local community is we have a, a beach called Sandpoint Beach, and there's been a few deaths there because it's a very shallow body of water and that kind of drops off. So there's been some drownings there. There was one recently. So, you know, politicians are rightly considering moving that beach to the east to a safer part of the you know Detroit River area. That's fine. I mean, politicians make decisions like that, moving of beaches, building of municipal infrastructure projects. They build roads and bridges and, you know, deal with general community issues, the, the building and placement of libraries, etc. But it's almost becoming rare to read uh, about issues that are morally neutral. The vast majority of things that grab our attention today that are considered political are actually religious and ideological in nature. So they presume a source of authority, uh, some sort of a deity, whether the deity is the state or um, humanity, you know, kind of a humanistic overtone. We have all kinds of issues taking place in our culture pertaining to how and when to educate children and what the curriculum should be that are not morally neutral. They they contain ideologies and religious claims. We have mentioned repeatedly on this podcast our concern about censorship bills, uh, medical assistance and suicide bills. Uh, we're concerned with the conversion therapy bill. Uh, we have this issue of, you know, the treatment of Native Americans on the table right now. These are not ideologically neutral. They are, if we could use this term, religious or spiritual in nature. There's a worldview attached to them. And so it's incredibly naive for the Christian church to maintain this strong, you know, one hand we have the proclamation of the gospel and on the other hand we have politics and sort of like near the twain shall meet. I was just perusing a, an article written by a fellow Christian um, a day or two ago and he was trying to 
as best as I could summarize it, call the church to sort of butt out of politics. And I, I understand the sentiment if that means that your pastor or your church leaders aren't preaching the gospel and aren't preaching from the scriptures. But the reality is we're embodied beings living in a culture, in a context, in a system, and decisions are being made, rightly or wrongly, for us, for our children, for our churches, that at times are contrary to Christian truth or contrary to, you know, historic, historically accepted principles of behavior for Western civilizations. And the church needs to weigh in on these. So it's it's absolutely, the more, maybe I could put it this way, the more the state starts to act like the church, the more the church needs to involve itself in state affairs. Not because the church wants to be the state, but because the the state has increasingly taken the church's job description from it. We have politicians, you know, lecturing us on issues of morality or ideology or religious belief. Uh, we have, you know, right now in our country, this month long or whatever it is, emphasis on, you know, the, the gay pride movement. And one of the marketing lines they use is love is love. Well, right there, you're making a religious ideological claim. You need to define love to, to say it's okay for you to have sex with and love whoever you want under any circumstances you want and to then call society to accept that. I'm not just talking about tolerating it, but accepting the ideology, even promoting the ideology is a religious slash ideological decision. How can the church possibly stay quiet on that? If we're supposed to engage in our world and be salt and light and be a prophetic voice in, in the darkness and stand for justice. So we got, we have to stop this hard. This is preaching the gospel over here. This is politics over there. Near the twain shall meet. There was even a Christian brother who, uh, you know, was criticizing uh, a recent Christian worship service, outdoor worship service here in our province. He says it wasn't it wasn't a Christian service at all. It was just a an anti-mask, anti-social distancing political event. Well, yeah. So what? All of that has spiritual, religious undertones and connotations to it. So this this notion that the church just preaches the gospel and we stay out of civilian political affairs is is unhelpful to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen in the news this this mention of the residential school system. Uh, some of our listeners, it's been so long since they have been closed or they've been closed for quite a while. Our listeners might not know what that's all about. So could you give a bit of background about the purpose of residential schools and the, the timeline of them? Yeah, sure. So so residential schools, they're called Indian residential schools. I know we typically don't use the term Indian today. We, you know, we use other language, First Nations or whatnot, but I'm just using the historic language. So the Indian residential school system existed in our country for approximately 100 years. 
They were fizzling out in the 60s, but the final one didn't close, I think, till 1996. But they were they were sort of a, a pretty popular, especially at the beginning of the 1900s. There was, I think, some of the groundwork was laid in the late 1800s, maybe even the 1870s. But um, the idea was that the state, the government of Canada, would forcibly take uh, Indian children from their parents off of reserves, et cetera, and they would put them in state-run schools. And so whatever the minimum age was, I don't know what it would be, five or six or whatever it was, you would you would potentially be away from your parents for 10 months of the year. They actually preferred that the kids be in sort of a different geographical location than the parents. So the parents couldn't, quote unquote, interfere with the state's responsibility to educate your children. Now, there were some reasons for this. The Canadian government had this notion that the the Indian parents weren't doing their job as they understood it. They weren't educating their kids. They weren't keeping the kids up with the standards that they would expect to, for Canadian children to to uh, you know measure up to. So this like this big brother notion that we can do a better job than the parents in educating their kids. So part of it was um, this notion that the state can do a better job educating children than parents can can do. There was also, you know, some some racial undertones to it. I, I think that's pretty much undeniable. Mm-hmm. In that they they saw you know a lot of the um, Indian nations as sort of like savages or uncivilized. Some of that language is actually used by officials that were operating these schools. So they figured, well, let's sort of Europeanize them. Let's take them out of their Aboriginal contexts, and uh, you know, then they wouldn't learn the native languages. They wouldn't participate in the native customs. And so this this went on for decades. And I was listening to uh, you know a couple of interviews by senior citizens who when they were children were in residential schools. And by the way, this, this was pretty much coast to coast. The only two provinces that didn't have residential schools out of our 10 provinces and now three territories or two at the time were um, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. Every other mm-hmm. province had them. The territories had them. I think they said there was um, something like 150,000 kids that were put through these things. And the children were subject to Abuse, uh, sexual abuse, which is not uncommon when you take kids away from their parents. You don't; they're not they're not protected by the, the people that love them the most. Many of them went without food. Uh, one lady was talking about her how her dad had to. Um, uh, so so she was in these schools, but her father was as well. When he was a boy, they were sort of limited almost to eating raw potatoes and bread. Wow. So the, the diet was pretty pretty meager. A lot of them were put into forced labor settings. Uh, Tuberculosis and disease often would sweep through these institutions and and kill a lot of the children. And um, there was one place where they would use sort of an electric chair to discipline kids. Um, You know, little kids who often, you know, they don't have the 
the bladder strength that adults do. We're, we're not allowed to go to the bathroom all night long. And if they did, they get slapped around. Um, if they got up for a drink of water in the middle of the night, they were forced to, you know, ingest cod liver oil until they threw up as punishment. So a lot, a lot of heartbreaking stories from survivors of this residential school system, which, you know, you can understand is very degrading um, and, you know, very, very disturbing to, uh, to think about. So that's just sort of an overview of several generations of uh, what, at, what at the time were called Aboriginal, like First Nations people, or in, they were, would have been called Indians at the time, First Nations people that were subject to indoctrination by the state. You know, the this, this state saying, we, we know what's better for you. You need to adopt our culture. Um, you know, you need to follow our patterns. You're, you're a threat to our ideology. And so kids literally forcibly removed from their parents and put through state education in the absence of parental oversight. So this week, obviously, um, many people are aware already, some very disturbing news went public about the residential school system in BC. Uh, and so we can bring people up to speed on what that situation what is. Yeah, so in, there's been rumors floating around for a long time that um, some of the children were sort of buried on site when they died at these schools. And I don't know if that was ever fully proven, but this week, um, kind of the news broke that at one of the former residential schools in Kamloops, British Columbia, so the western end of Canada, for our American listeners, uh, there were 215 graves of children discovered, little kids, I think starting at the age of three or four, right through, uh, buried, buried on site. We have no known records of this. We don't know if parents were informed or, or what, hmm. but it's not. It's not like a bona fide cemetery. It's mm -hmm. 215 graves in this obscure location. They may end up discovering more um, of kids that were buried there that went to these schools. Now, you know, the causes of death, who knows? I mean, we, we know that tuberculosis was a going concern at the time. And a lot of these schools just weren't built for capacity they had in them, maybe the ventilation systems, et cetera, the medical care wasn't there. Uh, you know, regardless, to take, let's say it was only 215, chances are there's a lot more, but to take 215 children from their parents and to educate them and for whatever reason in the process to either be complicit in or at least to be aware of their death and for those children to be buried on school grounds, you know, without knowledge or consent, or at least public records, you know, that seems to be what we're going the way, the way the narrative's going is by anyone's standard an immoral act. Mm -hmm. It's a sinful act. It's a disgusting act. And the the thing that makes this deeply concerning for me is that Christian people, Christian people, using that word in the broadest sense of the term, uh, were complicit in residential schools. For the most part, the residential schools, the brainchild of the Canadian government and what was called the Indian Affairs Office, 
they delegated the running of these schools to the Roman Catholic Church, you know, which is a major branch of branch of Christianity. So the Roman Catholic Church, it was their nuns and their priests that were responsible for the discipline of these children. They were the ones, you know, slapping kids in the face because they got up in the night for a drink. Uh, you know, they were the ones bringing out these zapper electric chairs. They were the ones not feeding these children properly. They were the ones permitting these young people to be, you know, put into a bed at night in a, in a foreign context without a hug or a kiss from their parents. Uh, you know, very little physical contact, loving, nurturing physical contact. These were Christianized people that were complicit in this. And, you know, that's what makes it, you know, extra disturbing to think about. Mm -hmm. So um, just out of curiosity, was it only like, I'm, I'm not even very aware of which churches, like, was it specifically Roman Catholic churches only, or do you know, was there? Yeah, I think it was just the Roman Catholic church. I know there have been apologies issued from various branches of Christianity. The Presbyterian church, I think issued one some time ago, but I, I think they were, um, I think they were pretty much all operated by, by the Roman Catholic church. Okay. And I know I saw something in the news about the Pope still hasn't made an apology. And that's, I think something that's infuriating them, but mm. what lessons should we take away from this tragedy? Cause obviously we want to learn whatever we can uh, from this. Yeah. I think there's seven things, se several things for us to consider foundational to a creational view of life is this notion that a man meets a woman, they marry, they leave and cleave, and they form their own household. And their children are their responsibility to raise. Mm -hmm. This is something that historic peoples have understood, but it seems to have been forgotten in the last couple hundred years, and especially in, in the moment. We need to apply this to some current circumstances. But, you know, Deuteronomy 6, right? You, you talk about this to your kids. You, you train your kids, you know, on the road. You're talking about them. You're, you're talking about God's God's law and word as you, you know, as you travel. Um, it is it is the responsibility of parents, first and foremost, to train and educate their children. If a parent chooses to partner with another parent and another parent and another parent and another parent and form a, a little school or something, fine. But at the end of the day, parents will stand before God and give an account for the education that their children have received. If a parent has physiological or mental illness, you know, this is where charitable people, Christian people can step in and help to lighten that load, maybe educate another person's child. But the ideal is has never been and never should be the state educates children now, we live in this sort of society that wants to standardize everything. You know, everybody's got to have, we got to standardize everything. We got our, you know, our fire codes and our, our, our highway traffic acts and standardize education. So it's almost unthinkable for people today to wrap their mind around this idea that, well, how can everybody get a standard education if, if parents are educating their kids. I mean, this parent might do a great job. This parent might do a poor job, whatever it might be. How do we, how do we standardize? Well, this is a modern phenomenon that's, that's, you know, worthy of discussion and consideration, but I'm just talking strictly from a theological perspective that 
we cannot sacrifice the primary responsibility of parents to educate their child, which is a biblical kind of creational uh, norm for to to accommodate this modern concern for standardized education. Um, the at the end of the day, every parent listening to the sound of my voice, you need to understand this. You and you alone are responsible for the education of your children. And you need to take full and absolute responsibility for that. Even if you partner with other institutions or whatever to do that, you will give an account to God for educating your kids. Now, when a state, a country, a nation steps in and says, okay, well, maybe we can offer helps or schooling systems for for, for parents to consider – well, you got to be careful about that because there's no state that's morally neutral. But even if there was one that was morally neutral, it's still the responsibility of Christians to do that. Now, in our context, we know that the the government of Canada was much more Christianized 100 years ago than it is today. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why Christians were complicit in this. Well, they're thinking, well, these, you know, these kids are being raised and in uh, you know foreign religions, or they're not going to have the opportunities, so we'll step in and we'll assist the the state in in educating you know children, but it's it's still not the responsibility of the church or governments to educate your kids. Mm-hmm. So that that's sort of lesson number one. In our context, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is that. We need to resist at all costs this notion that Big Brother knows best. You know, mm-hmm. Big Brother referring to the state. Big Brother does not know best. Big Brother is just a, com- a com- um, you know a collage of paid technocrats and experts from all different walks of life and elected officials that come and go. That uh, you know, especially in a country like ours, are rampantly secularist. Many of them are cultural Marxists and whatnot. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely opposed. I, I become increasingly opposed the older I get to public education because it's a, it's a different form of indoctrination. It's a different form of indoctrination driven by a different set of concerns mm-hmm. than it was in, you know, whatever, 1906. But we, we live at a point in time where our public education systems are indoctrinating kids mm-hmm. into a worldview that they consider preferable to what a parent may consider preferable. Mm -hmm. Well, fundamentally that's the same problem that led to the rise of the residential school systems. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the government of Canada knows best the possibly at the beginning, the well-meaning Roman Catholic church knows best. Well, clearly they didn't Mm -hmm. who just from a, from a, um, you know, if you think about this on sort of a, a very human level, let's say you have a six-year-old girl who is, um, you know, being in a home or being raised in a home where, you know, her mother and father maybe aren't super educated. Maybe they're not particularly, you know, literate. Mm-hmm. And Canadian government says, well, that's, we, can't, we can't allow that. So we're going to take your kid away. And we're going to stick them in a school where, you know, we got some experts in the English language and they're going to teach a kid to read and write and all that kind of stuff. The secularists would applaud that. 
we would say, yeah, but is the end goal of raising a child literacy? What about this precious little girl Hmm. being hugged and kissed by her mother before bed, read a story, Um, opportunities to sit down and talk to her mom and dad about her fears or maybe some fight she's having with her brothers or whatever it might be, or, uh, you know, a, a friendship that she has that goes sour or, you know, asking, you know, questions about, you know, relational matters. None of that happens in the institutional setting. These kids were essentially treated like, you know, little robots. It was very strict. Uh, you know, these kids would go 10 months of the year without being um, lovingly touched, um, without someone counseling them through, you know, their fears and concerns. Um, some of them testified to growing up and not really even knowing how to raise their own children, not knowing how to love, not knowing how to help their own children think through the issues of life because this whole main you know period of their childhood was absent of any relational connecting. It was just indoctrination, indoctrination, believe this, teach. I mean, they, they were... Some of these schools, it's it's so ridiculous. They, you know, they're teaching them, uh, you know, Irish jigs or square dancing or whatever. I'm not opposed to Western culture, but the idea that these Western cultural practices should somehow be imposed upon the world is absurd. Hmm. So Big Brother doesn't know best. Big Brother does not and cannot love your children to the degree that you can, mm-hmm. period. And Big Brother has a an agenda for your child. The people running those schools back in the day had an agenda. They thought they were doing what's best for these children, but ended up destroying them on many levels. The same lesson needs to be thought today. Big Brother, the state, you know, the proverbial benevolent state thinks it knows what's best. You know, they, they think that exposing your kids to a radical sexual agenda, uh, exposing them to sexual deviancy, what we would consider sexual deviancy, sinful acts is, is better. Why? Well, that's going to make them more tolerant. That's going to help them to understand more diversity. Folks, it's ideologically driven. Mm-hmm. It's contrary to the word of God, by the way. And it's sinful. So we we have to be careful of any attempt for the state to take or coerce our children in terms of their educational standards. We need to we need to wake up to the fact that Big Brother doesn't know best. Standard edu- standardized education, while that might be um, helpful on a certain level, is probably an an idea we just need to throw aside and realize. There's going to be a lot of different people raised in a lot of different contexts. Some are going to be ahead. Some are going to be behind. Big deal. If they're raised in a context where they're loved by their parents and they become as effective as they can in life, fine. If if for the sake of standardizing educational outcomes, we sacrifice parental consent and parental insight and parental love and parental nurturing in the lives of our children, it's absolutely not even remotely worth it. Mm-hmm. And then we have to be careful about the state imposing their 
radical, what is now a radical leftist agenda on our children. So, you know, you get the pre, the premier, the prime minister, you know, all coming out. Oh, we can't believe we're disgusted by this. We, you know, we can't believe this is happening. Guys, you're doing the exact same thing. Hmm. You're doing the exact same thing. You think you know what's best for my kids. You're trying to indoctrinate my kids into a worldview that you have decided is best. It's anti-creational. It's anti-scriptural. Most of it is disgusting. Stay out of the lives of my children. I'll educate them myself. Thank you very much. This should be the Christian response to what's going on in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe one more little sidebar, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Um, the same politicians that are gasping and sobbing that 215 children's graves have been discovered in Kamloops continue even during a lockdown to oversee thousands upon thousands of abortions in our country. So most of this is not driven by any sort of a true moral disgust as you and I should be driven by as men filled Mm -hmm. with the spirit of God. This is virtue signaling. This is politicking. And I'm not going to give them any gold stars for it. Mm -hmm. Well, moving on to another political uh, story that's come out this week. Um, You wanted to talk about the situation in Ontario regarding the emergency powers that Doug Ford has been, uh, Granted, or you maybe can explain that context, especially to our American friends. Doug Ford is the premier of Ontario. The way our political system works here in Ontario is we elect what are called members of provincial parliament. In some provinces, they're called members of the legislative assembly, so MLAs or MPPs. And whatever party has the most seats, their leader becomes the premier, or on a federal level, the prime minister. So Doug Ford is um, the head of what's called the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. And he's been our premier for a few years now. So typically when um, motions or bills are put into law or powers are granted, you have uh, the Legislative Assembly in the province. They meet, all your elected officials meet, and they deliberate and they vote. Um, but what, what's happened over the past year and a bit on a few different occasions is that different motions have been presented. So this one was presented by the Solicitor General, who's also an MPP, a member of the Progressive Conservative Party, that Doug Ford, who's been essentially ruling as a de facto dictator for a year now, mm-hmm. would be granted yet nine more months of that through what's called emergency power. So he's been it, – it has passed. It passed on Monday. So he now has nine more months of absolute rule over our province when it comes to all these health and lockdown restrictions. What what is shocking about this is that the majority of MPPs didn't even show up to vote. Mm -hmm. They just didn't vote at all. So a, a goodly chunk of his caucus members, his progressive conservatives, this is supposed to be Ontario's right-wing party, mm-hmm. um, voted in favor of granting him nine more months of emergency powers because after all, it's such an emergency, right? Like after 15, 16 months, come on. But they granted him nine more months of emergency powers. Uh, a smaller list of people voted against it. And then there's a massive list of people that just didn't even bother showing up, didn't even bother voting. And some of them are like, well, we're not allowed to vote. No, you're allowed to vote, Okay. 
this is a democracy. Don't play games. We know how the system works. So what we have now in our province, we're in June now, for the next nine months, we have no functioning democracy. We have a premier who's now functioning as a dictator over all of society, deciding with his panel of technocrats, unelected medical experts, that you know, whether schools can open and close, there's no room for real voter discussion, you know, his whole coerced vaccination program and all this kind of stuff. I, I'm just going to make a statement here. It's disgusting. Hmm. It's anti-democratic. It's anti-Canadian. It's wrong. Uh, I'm sounding the alarm. Many media outlets are sounding the alarm. But majority of passive Canadians just seem to be putting up with it. So this is the situation that we find ourselves in from a political perspective in that he now has um, all the powers he wants for the next nine months to add or subtract the Reopening Ontario Act to utilize the Emergency Civil Protection Act to his, to his sole advantage. So why should this concern churches specifically? We've been fighting, uh, you know, with a very small minority of people to, for the sovereignty of Christ over his church, uh, we, we believe that, well, the word church means gathered out, gathered ones. We believe the church of Jesus Christ is called and mandated to gather, to assemble together and in previous podcasts, we've talked about all the reasons for that. There's many reasons for that. You can, I won't repeat them all here. I'm just giving a quick summary. Um, Doug Ford, who historically probably would have been considered one of the more you know pro-church, pro-Christian premiers, um, it, it seems to me that his concern for the church is dropping further and further and further down the list. You know, we've gone from being considered non-essential in terms of numbers allowed in to less than essential or even below the non-essential. Sorry, we got essential, non-essential, and then there's a church, even less. So if you if you are an essential business and we go, go into phase two where X number of people have been vaccinated, you can open your business to 50%. Non-essential can go to 25%. The church will be relegated to 15%. So in our province right now, any attempts to reopen the church, society, businesses, et cetera, is all tied to a percentage of people being vaccinated by the um, you know various companies that are providing these these um, vaccinations, not yet authorized in the US by the FDA, but authorized for emergency purposes. So it should concern the church because um, we essentially have no place to go. Our MPPs are not representing us. Our petitions are not being responded to. I mean, you can start all the petitions and write all the letters you want. Nobody's reading them. They don't care. They're not responding to them. Mm-hmm. The church is at at the every beck and call of the government, the bequest of the government. Doug Ford hit – I'm sure this isn't on his mind, but Doug Ford is literally functioning as the king of the Christian church in Ontario. Mm-hmm. He decides at his sole discretion when we can open, when we can close, when we can baptize, when we can sing, when we can meet, when we can't meet, 
one man. So we're not even, I mean, I'm not opposed to the, the state's interference with these things on the best of days, even if the legislative assembly was fully open. But how much more heinous is it when one man makes the decision and one man only? Why he's doing that, I mean, it, it's mind-boggling. Maybe he just loves power. Maybe he thinks he's a genius and can figure you know, our, our way through this. Maybe his handlers think that this is going to give him an up in the polls. Maybe he's concerned that he's going to be challenged. or I don't know. What is – it's ridiculous. We're not in an emergency. It's just That's the fact. We're not in an emergency. The bodies aren't stacking up in the streets. And even if we were under, you know, all these ridiculous restrictions, it would at least give some meager comfort to know that a few hundred people weighed in on it and voted on it, elected officials. So we, we, have, we have no democracy, no functional democracy in our country. We're living under a dictatorship. You know, it appears we're going to be pushing the two-year mark before we're out from under it. Who knows what's going to happen after that? And, you know, this is what makes it incredibly frustrating for the churches, especially when so, so few of them are willing to uh, stand up. So that's a tough spot that we're in uh, and we're not getting out of it any time soon. So what what ultimately should be our response? I I was thinking about this question a couple of weeks ago, realizing, you know what, it seems that God has allowed this doesn't want us in our church building with our full church family right now. How do we respond? How should we respond to continued lockdowns, closed churches, et cetera? Well, morally and ecclesiastically, God wants his people to meet. But at the same time, it, 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 it must be some sort of a judgment from God upon the church as a whole to permit us to suffer in this way. Because we know God is sovereign over mm-hmm. all things. But at the same time, we're not blaming God because... Mm-hmm. Um, human rulers are responsible for their deeds and the deeds that are being committed against the Christian church are disturbing. Um, So what do we do? Well, obviously we want to be praying for God to break through and all the more in a situation that from a human perspective isn't even fixable. So I, I tend to be maybe a little bit more of a strategic thinker and analyzer than some, I don't have a master plan. There's no master plan. There's no, okay, this is what we need to do. Step A, step B, step C, and we're all going to be rescued from the tyranny and we're all going to be back worshiping. There, there's, there's, there's nothing like that out there. Nobody's floating that. I don't know any thinker in the country that's floating that. So we need to be praying that God can do what does seem to be kind of an impossible set of circumstances. And when we are faced with impossible circumstances, what I find in my own life is that I I get frustrated or irritable or angry or experience despair or whatever the emotion might be. And you cry out to the Lord and, and you try to respond in a way that will help to fix the problem. You know God is disciplining the church and sanctifying you when there is no easy way out. But within the process of trial, when we encounter the Lord and learn to trust in him, put our faith in him, you know the Lord is moving when he gives you peace, Mm -hmm. right? Now, peace isn't the same as, oh, I'm encouraged by the circumstances. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I do think as I've prayed and thought about this, the Lord has given me 
maybe not an everyday, um, but he's given me more peace the further we get into this, not because I'm happier, not because I'm particularly optimistic, but that's just a movement of the Lord. So we, we do have to pray. Um, I also think at this point, until um, more churches say, okay, we just, we just need to open up. There really isn't an easy way out of this. Now, um, you know, as you take a stand, you meet a lot of people, you meet people at protest, people email, call, and I'm at different phases, I've heard um, different themes from churches. So like last year it was, yeah, let's all open up. You know, you get a lot of people, let's open her up. Then the second lockdown, it, it was a different tone. It was almost like, well, we should be locked down. We should be locked down. Like back in December, it seemed like mm. most churches actually thought it was wrong to try to open up. That's my sense. Now, it seems to me that most pastors think this is ridiculous and they want to open up, but they're still not willing to do anything. And I used to think it was mostly a Romans 13 issue, that just a different view of what the state's authority is. But guys are just coming out, just saying straight up, because I don't want to get ticketed. I don't want to get fined. So now we do have, I've been reluctant to say this, but I actually think that the dominant issue now is cowardice. I think mm -hmm. last year when some of my colleagues were calling other people cowards, I was pretty reluctant to do that because I think it was driven more by ideological differences and theological differences. But now I would say it's just a whole lot of cowards. There's just a lot of cowardly pastors out there that are very concerned about one guy's like, I don't want to lose my job. Uh, we're concerned about our insurance. We're concerned about liability. Well, you know what, guys? Those of us that have been fighting this fight in the front lines, we're sick and tired of fighting in the front lines. We're not going to do your job for you for too much longer. Um, you know, many of us have been run out of our church buildings. There's only a couple dozen voices in the whole province speaking out. We're not going to continue to do your job for you. And what's going to happen is as we sort of bow out of the public fight, you're just going to suffer more. Um, because what we're not going to do as a church, we're not going to, we're going to continue to be public in our teaching and preaching, but we're not going to continue to stage protests and to write letters and to start petitions and to, to do all the speaking on your behalf as you sit on the sidelines and cheer us on or chewing your fingernails, hoping that we're victorious while you've been silent. We're not going to do that. So I'm at a point now where I almost think the church of Jesus Christ in Canada needs to take a more severe beating before mm -hmm. it wakes up. You know, maybe maybe we do need the government to come in and say, yep, you got to forcibly vaccinate all your people. You're closing down your church. You're not going to be meeting for several years. This is what you'll preach. This is what you won't preach. Maybe we need a few generations of that, of persecution, before the Christian church wakes up and says enough's enough. So until God's people as a whole stand up and rise up and speak back, the systemic issues that are present in our culture the 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 uh, you know relative um, what would be a, uh, the term kind of the taking the church and throwing it to the sidelines kind of an idea mm -hmm. this this notion of yeah the relative disregard for the church thank you for that that's not going to go away until the church starts to act as if they actually have an important message and mission mm -hmm. so all you guys out there that might be listening and there's 
not that I'm really expecting my opponents to be listening to my podcast, but I'm a realist. But these guys out there that are saying stupid things like, oh, the church doesn't have to meet to be the church. Um, the church isn't a building, so we don't have to meet. Or, you know, Jesus is just fine working with his church in the absence of, you know, gathered assembly. Or this is just temporary. All this ridiculous rhetoric, which has led nowhere and has just sunk us into a deeper and deeper pit. Or or those that would say, this is this is hilarious. There's actually pastors that are now blaming us for Doug Ford's lockdown. Mm-hmm. Well, because we've stood up, Doug Ford's punishing us, punishing us. Give your head a shake, people. Okay. The reason why he's he's locking down churches is because those of you that have been silent have indicated to him that you don't even want to be open. You're worse than the business owners, at least the business, small business owners are trying to fight to stay open. Most pastors are doing nothing to their shame. I actually wonder at times how many of them are actually spirit-filled and born again. I'm starting to wonder that. How many pastors that are pastoring Christian churches across our country are proving they're not actually even born-again men? They're religious salesmen. They're people who view this as you know their employment. Because after a year and a half, if the Spirit of God has not moved in your life and given you a passion and a calling to stand for the absolute sovereignty of Christ over the ministry of the church, and as you look around you and you see the desperation of your people, and you see people apostatize and fall away, and you've done nothing because you're hiding behind a misinterpretation of Romans 13, or uh, you know in your heart of hearts that what's going on is wrong, but you won't say anything because you're scared of losing your people, shame on you. So until the Christian church, I know, I know I'm being harsh, but frankly, I probably haven't been harsh enough up till now. Uh, until you stop hiding behind these excuses and stand up there from a human perspective, there is no hope for our nation. So God, God, by the way, will always save unto himself a remnant. There's going to be house fellowships. They're already forming all across the province, underground church networks. They're forming all across the province. Faithful Christians will meet with or without strong pastoral leadership, and new leaders will rise up. But until there's a uh, an uprising uh, in the Christian church, uh, faithful Christians are either going to leave the country and migrate to places where there's no, more liberty, or faithful Christians are going to find alternative means of being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the political climate is probably just going to get worse and worse. So, I'm actually excited about the fact that God is winnowing his church. People take offense to that. I don't really care. God is winnowing his church. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. He's separating those that have chosen to trust in a corrupt medical establishment uh, for permission to do every little thing from hugging someone to celebrating the holy sacraments. Those of us that are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ will being respectful of authority we are the ones that will receive the victory. There's absolutely no question about him for that. We should be thankful to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Aaron. I know there's going to be people listening that may uh, b- take offense to that, but we want to remind people as well. There's never a, a time to uh, that's too late, really, in some ways. That's maybe not totally true uh, to actually change your mind on things, right? To yeah. repent. Um, and there's not going to be an, I told you so. There's <laughs> Maybe, no shame in that. <laughs> absolutely not. And I would actually say, and just for the listeners, you may not know me as well as you know, Aaron, cause he does the majority of the talking. But if I was not in this chair with Aaron for this last year, I probably would have drifted in some of those, uh, 
arguments, I believe. And, uh, been over there. So anyways, thank you for your time, Aaron. I appreciate it. And I appreciate those that are listening. I don't know if you had any last words before we go. Well, no, I'm just, I'm thankful that the Lord has continued to work. I've seen uh, many people's lives impacted who have stayed faithful. I'm not hearing good news stories from churches that have been closed, but I am hearing good news stories from people that, um, you know, have taken a stand. And unfortunately, some relationships have ended because of differing opinions. But this isn't a fourth level issue anymore. This is primary. Christ is either your king or your local premier, prime minister, president, or congressman is your king. And you need to kind of make a decision. Who are you ultimately going to allow to educate your children? And who are you going to ultimately allow to dictate your church, the parameters of Christian worship? So, I hope that that's an encouragement to people and that, you know, we brought some clarity to things. And again, while there is shame in sin, there is no shame in repentance. Thank the Lord for that. Amen. Well, thanks, Aaron. And thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe and rate the podcast. Make sure to share it on social media. And most importantly, tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.